Whitney. Yes. How long has it been since we've waltzed? Oh, I don't think we've ever waltzed, have we? It was like an Adam's Family reference. Oh, I didn't get it. Okay. Greetings, friends. Welcome to our secret headquarters. Thousands of miles below the Earth's crust. It where takes we so br- long to get here. Where we podcast, critically acclaimed. Seriously, the, it takes like three days to get here. <laughs> the film review podcast, where nothing collides. It's just us. My name is Whitney Seibold, uh, here down beneath the Earth's crust. Um, I am a film critic for various outlets about the internet. I write for IGN, mostly. Uh, and other outlets as well. Uh, my name is William Bibiani, and I'm really glad I don't have to use the explosion sound effect this week. Really saves me some time and energy. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I write for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting and sometimes Collider, and everybody calls me Bibs. And this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing a whole bunch of movies. Uh, we're reviewing The Addams Family, Gemini Man, Parasite, Mary, and, of course, the one everyone's talking about, High strung free dance. High strung colon free dance. Actually, there's no colon. Just high strung free dance. On IMDb, I saw no colon. Uh, maybe they replaced it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to tell you this right now. If you know, sometimes I think people probably like listen to our podcast and like pay attention to the movies that they know about. It, they're interested in more. Keep, keep an eye on high strung free dance. Like don't don't miss that review. That's going to be an interesting conversation because <laughs> there's a whole series of films that are coming out now that deserve their own cult, and I don't think everyone knows about them yet. Um, so all those are are, are a thing. Uh, and uh, also, before we get started on any of those, mm. uh, we have some sad news to discuss. Well, this is true. We we, we lost a. Uh, uh, He's a legend, sure. I think he's a legend. Why not? I think Um, he's a legend. He has only... He's one of those legends that only had, like, one leading role in his entire film career, and it was for the film Alligator. (laughs) (laughs) But we're talking about Robert Forster, who passed away this week at the age of 84, I believe. Uh, No, uh, no, you're you're, you're off. It's uh, 78. What? Yeah, yeah. Oh, golly. Yeah. Sooner than I thought, poor guy. Yeah, you apparently had heard wrong. Mm. Uh, but yeah, Rob Forster uh, was a very hardworking character actor. He, uh, we were both wrong. He's seventy-eight. <laughs> I said seventy-eight. Oh, you did say seventy-eight. Yes, okay. I did. Anyway, he was mm. a very hardworking character actor for many, many years. Mm. Uh, people who followed, you know, t- TV and B movies like Alligator, for example, which is an excellent movie, and we're going to talk about it in more detail in a minute. Uh, knew he was talented, but for whatever reason, Hollywood never came a calling and never gave him a big breakout role. Mm. Until he'd been working in the industry for like 30 years. Yeah. And then Quentin Tarantino, mm. who happened to run into him at a restaurant just before he made <laughs> Jackie Brown, uh-huh. like gave Robert Forster a script and said, hey, read this. And apparently Robert Forster was like, well, this is nice. Do you want me to play like the judge or like who who are you interested in? And he's like, no, I want you to play like Max Cherry. He's like the third lead in the movie. Mm. And he was like. Uh, really? He's like, I don't think they'll let you cast me. And Quentin Tarantino's like, I did Pulp Fiction. I'll cast whoever the hell I want. <laughs> That's right. He had just done Pulp Fiction, and he had yeah. One Academy of, Award changed this face of independent filmmaking. And I, I think like he wanted to stay on the map, so a few of his screenplays, like he, From Dust Till Dawn, was his screenplay, and yep. that came out after. 
uh, and then he did um, Four Rooms after like that same year. He was part of an anthology yeah. film as well. So he was working a lot, and he was trying to really cement his place in the cinematic landscape. Mm-hmm. And when the time came for him to do his only adaptation, yeah. like official adaptation, he did an adaptation of uh, Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch. Uh-huh. Um, he cast uh, Samuel L. Jackson, who had just got an Oscar nomination mm-hmm. for Pulp Fiction. He was really hot at the time. Uh, but everyone else was like kind of at a low point in their career. Like Bridget Fonda was on the way down a bit yeah. when she got her role. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert De Niro wasn't at an all-time career high, but he was still a good get. It just an oddly small role for him. Mm-hmm. But the two leads were Pam Greer, who is of course a legend in black exploitation cinema, mm-hmm. but who hadn't had like a cool good role in since like the mid eighties, I think. Yeah, I, and I, from what I understand, uh, Tarantino wrote it with her in mind. <laughs> yeah. Like wanted to do like sort of a, a Pam Greer tribute project, yeah, and uh, and and of course as the bail bondsman who mm. uh, teams up with Pam Greer over the course of Jackie Brown, uh, he got Rob Forster. And I know you work for Tarantino, you're allowed to talk to critically about the mm. movie, so I'll just come out and say it. Mm. I think Jackie Brown is Tarantino's best film. Yeah, I, I sadly can't comment on my boss's films. I know, but, but I'm gonna say uh, right. I think it's his most mature work in a lot mm. of ways, and I think a lot of it is because. Pam Greer and Rob Forster bring all the weight of their experience to those characters who have been through a lot and then suddenly connect with each other mm-hmm. in unexpected circumstances, mm-hmm. and they're so genuine. And Rob Forster got an Oscar nomination, and somehow Pam Greer didn't. It's a little unusual. Isn't that weird? Um, she totally should have been at least nominated. She could have won. But uh, yeah, the characters are all adults, and I do like Robert Forster's performance. Um, and after that, he was in a lot of you know yeah. significant art house movies and some mainstream stuff as well. Um, yeah, um, well, he was before that. He was in stuff like The Black Hole leading up to this. He was, yeah. uh, you know, he was. Well, in a- The Black Hole isn't exactly like the crowning jewel in anyone's like filmography except like the production design crew. <laughs> the Black Hole was like Disney's attempt to do a Star Wars and they made like this really sinister mm. like Island of Dr. Moreau type dystopian nightmare sci-fi epic which also had fun robots with cutesy eyes. <laughs> it's a big mess. It's a fascinating watch but it's, it's a big mess. That's when Disney first tried to do Star Wars before they just bought it. Exactly. Um, but yeah, he he was in a lot of really like played supporting roles in a lot of varied, really weird, interesting movies. He was in a really great film in the '60s called Reflections in a Golden Eye. That was his first film. I've actually never seen um, that. I heard it's weird. I've I've projected it uh, before, and yeah, it's weird. <laughs> so, like dark and intense, this kind of like hot house thing. Uh, he was uh, in Avalanche, which is part of that. Um you know, then I, it, all, all star disaster Irwin Allen. Kind yeah, it's of it's this mold. It's this whole movement in in blockbuster cinema that, like, I think young people don't really think about very much anymore. But mm-hmm. like, what Marvel movies are now is what like all star disaster movies were in the seventies. They were just everywhere, and they were all over the box office. Mm-hmm. They were driving the box office, and as they started winding down, Rob Forster was in one about an avalanche, and that one's got an MST three K episode. Does it really? Yeah, it's one of the it's one of the okay. Netflix ones. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was in he was in Delta Force. He was in one of the Maniac Cop sequels. Just he he was around, and I think after Jackie Brown, people like sort of sat up, took notice, and said, "Oh, wait a minute, this guy's a good actor." And he always has been, mm-hmm. and we never gave him enough credit. Mm-hmm. So after that, he started. He was in uh, Gus Van Sant's Psycho, which obviously didn't take the world by storm, but it was supposed to. He played the the shrink role. Yeah, he was the detective in Mulholland Drive. 
Uh, like just at the beginning. Well, it was, was going to be a bigger role in the TV series. Yeah, when, yeah. when Mulholland Drive was being pitched as a TV yeah, show. He was in uh, Charlie's Angels Full mm-hmm. Throttle. He had some TV roles as well. He was in um, he was in Karen Sisko, which was a spinoff of Out of Sight, which we keep meaning to get to on Cancel Too Soon, and one of these days mm-hmm. we will. Uh, he was in Firewall, and of course, everyone's favorite, Lucky Number Slevin. Well, then he was also in The Descendants, the Alexander Payne movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he has uh, he has one of the funniest uh, punches to the face I've seen in a movie. I'm there's, there's trying the, to remember it now. Oh, there's that arrogant little jerk kid who's like traveling around with George Clooney and, and Shailene Woodley. And, oh, yeah. And he's just sort of mouthing off at Robert Forster. And Robert Forster just says, I'm going to hit you in the face now. And just punches him right there. (laughs) (laughs) And I imagine that's what it's like. From what I understand, Robert Forster was actually a very warm, approachable person. But Mm. I like to think he was kind of a hard ass. Just Uh, He he gave off that vibe in a lot of his movies. Well, he he got got the impression he lived. And that he's got the weight of that life. Mm. Um, My favorite performance besides Jackie Brown, which I know it's a cliche, but it really was like tailor-made for his strengths. Mm. If Tarantino has one skill that sets him like apart from a lot of other filmmakers, is he knows how to tailor a role to even the most esoteric actor's strengths. Yeah. Like he can make an actor who isn't, doesn't seem to be good in anything, be Oscar worthy. Like it's really impressive. Um, But uh, yeah, Alligator is a delight. It was written by John Sayles, uh, who, in addition to writing and directing some classic dramas like Lone Star or Eight Men Out, uh, he also d- did a lot of screenwriting for a lot of B-grade features, but he mm. never phoned in a script, uh-huh. and Alligator is weirdly well-written. <laughs> it, ostensibly, it's just a Jaws knockoff where no one believes there's a giant alligator in the sewers and it keeps mm. popping up and killing people, and by the time the government and the local government decides to do something about it it's already too late and uh rob forster basically plays the uh, roy scheider role yeah um but like every single scene he's got business he's got character he's worried about his hair thinning and he's just got more depth than you'd ever expect from Uh a script like that and it's a fun movie it's really really good um a lot of people know him from uh the recent reboot of uh, twin peaks yeah um... uh he played he played the new sheriff truman Mm -hmm. um an odd role. He has one of the oddest scenes, I think, in uh, movies or television of the last ten years, where it's just him and um, oh, what's the kid from Scott Pilgrim? Michael Sarah. Yeah, it's him as, and Michael Sarah doing a bizarre as, as Wally Mar- Brando. <laughs> yeah, doing a bizarre Marlon Brando impersonation. Mm. And it's just, it's just Michael Sarah doing this weird Marlon Brando impersonation, and Rob Force is just going. Yep. <laughs> well, Rob, Rob Forster, like, just the sort of pain and defeat on his face in those scenes. Like, yes, I'm doing my Marlon Brando. Uh huh. Yeah. It's like the funniest thing. And uh, although I didn't see it, uh, they made a, f- a feature film spinoff of Breaking Bad. I'm not familiar with the show. I didn't watch the movie. Yeah, it came out this week. Uh, it opened the same day as, as the day he died. So uh, yeah. he, he was, so you could say, he was working up until the day he died. Uh, I haven't seen that one yet. Mm-hmm. He only has one other credit on IMDb after that, and it's an episode of the upcoming anthology series, uh, Amazing Stories. Which is going to be like an Apple? I think it's an Apple, Apple TV show? or Disney Plus. I think it's an Apple show. Um, I I don't know if he filmed his role yet, uh, mm. but um, a lot of people are saying El Camino is really good. I haven't seen it yet. I did watch Breaking Bad, but I haven't seen it yet. 
Um, maybe he'll be one of those actors who those rare occasions which an actor gets to go out on a really good movie. Yeah. A lot of the greatest actors ever don't go out on a great movie. It's really sad. Like it's not the end of the world because you know you never yeah. you can't control what your last movie is going to be. Call it, we call it Orson Welles syndrome. Yeah, Orson Welles, one of the most celebrated directors of our of, of all time, brilliant actor. When the material's good, what was his last movie? Played the the voice of Unicron in Transformers the movie from 1986. Yep, it's the last thing he did before he died. Now I know some people have fondness for that movie, but let's be honest here, that's a big step down from Marlon Brando. <laughs> not from Marlon Brando. <laughs> from from Marlon, Marlon, Marlon Brando too. You know, it was but, almost Marlon Brando's last movie. What it was, was it? Scary Movie Three? I think. Oh golly, really? He, he was supposed to be. There's a bit in Scary. I think it's the opening of Scary Movie Three, maybe four, where they do the opening of The Exorcist, but mm. it's like it's James Woods comes in and he's The Exorcist, and then he has like horrible diarrhea in the bathroom and like that's the whole gag jeez like that's it and James Woods came in and such, did that role because Marlon Brando just died <laughs> so oh, wow. James Woods at the last minute because Marlon that was almost his if the, he had died like three days later his last <laughs> role would have been <laughs> on the toilet in, in, a, in, a, in a scary a, movie sequel oh, yeah gee. I mean would have been a good sport for doing it but mm, mm. Not, not not near the way you wanted your final film the big I haven't seen one or three of that series. I've seen two, four, and five. Oh. One has no, a few no, good jokes. No, one no, has a few good jokes. None of them are that funny. Well, if, if any of them are funny, <laughs> it's one, and it's only sporadically funny, but one is actually pretty targeted. Like, it's very specifically doing Scream, so it plays a yeah. little bit more like a like uh, an airplane kind of thing, but it's still pretty tawdry. Yeah. Um, in any case, we're off the beaten path. Uh, Rob Forster. Really great actor, and there's a ton of his stuff where, you know, you're just going to accidentally run into him, yeah. whether you mean to or not, like you're watching Olympus Has Fallen. Oh, yeah, he was in that. Oh, yeah, he was in that. Yeah, <laughs> and I forgot about that. Cool. But then, like, you'll see him in really, really great stuff. Yeah. So um, I assume you've seen Jackie Brown. If not, see Jackie Brown. Otherwise, see Alligator. It's really great. Um, mm. And um, the, see Descendants and, as well. Just, yeah, he's good. Yeah. So rest in peace, Robert Forster. That was yeah. really terrific. Um, yeah, his life was really terrific. Yeah. Um, it was a really terrific job he did. Now uh, let's uh, let's move on mm. uh, to the big releases of the week. Uh, apparently, the the Joker is still number one film of the weekend, but the biggest new release mm. was the Adams Family. A new Adams Family film. That's that's a reason to get excited. I love the mm. Adams Family. The Adams yeah. Family started out as a comic strip in the New Yorker uh, from a guy named Charles Adams. Mm. Coincidence? Chaz. Uh, well, they, they weren't. He didn't name them at first. They were just this like family of monstrous people living in a, a haunted-looking mansion, and you know, abusing each other and murdering people, and just sort of having a gleeful time of it. But the gag was that they were actually they actually really liked each other, and they were a real family. They yeah. just did ghoulish things. Yeah, and and, um, and because he was Chaz Adams, they just call, started calling that family the Adams family, and that's. They took on the last name of Adams eventually. Uh, about 20, 25 years after that, uh, the Adams family got picked up as a television series uh, starring, uh, what was it? It was. It was uh, John Aston. John Aston. I almost said Sean. I almost said Sean. It's John Aston. John Aston as Gomez Adams uh, and. Ted Cassidy, Ted Cassidy played Lurch. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. He's great. Um, who was it? Who was who was Morticia? Was it Carolyn Jones? Yes, 
Yeah, Carolyn Jones is Carolyn amazing. Played, played Morticia, Morticia Adams and uh, Jackie Coogan as Uncle Fester, which was kind of weird. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and yeah. it, it kind of just poured it over pretty cleanly. It, some of the more malevolent humor didn't make the cut, but the gag was always they live in this creepy house with their disembodied hand and their giant Hulk-like butler, and they did things like try to shoot each other with bows and arrows, and they would cut the flowers off of roses to make the place look nice. They, they were. Uh, a typical sitcom family, but they their values were just the opposite of the typical sitcom family. They believed in pain and torture, but they were also very loving and warm. Uh, they were before there was even goth. They were goths, yeah, and they relished their outsider status. And, and they, they loved... They didn't even really understand the normies. That's the thing. The, the, the first episode is mm. like the Wednesday comes home from school. She has to go to public school. And she yeah. goes to school and she's like, we read a book and they slayed a dragon. And Jonathan's like, what kind of a school makes a child <laughs> read a story where they kill an innocent dragon? <laughs> and at the time, you know, nowadays that would seem like, you know, fine. But like at the time, that was, that was counterculture. That was pretty subversive. Mm. The idea that these people who would live so far outside the norm, like an active rejection of the very prim, proper, happy sitcom culture that was mm-hmm. still pervasive. And they were lovely. And I think everyone who felt like an outsider could relate to them. Yeah. And I don't know anyone personally who didn't have a crush on either John Aston or Carolyn Jones or both. <laughs> because well, they, they just, were just, they loved each other. They were they passionate. They loved each other. They, and more so than other sitcoms at the time, they were really sexy. Uh, like, they were into each other. They were like, yeah, like, re- like they were kissing on each other and touching a lot. And you didn't see that. And I think you could kind of get away with it because they were kind of monsters. Yeah. But like you could make the argument that the atoms weren't quite human. Yeah. <laughs> I know when uh, Barry Sonnenfeld made the Adams Family movie in 1991, I believe, uh, yeah. it they, they like would murder each other and be okay. So I'm not yeah. really sure what was going on with their their actual state of mortality. Well, I want to get to that because I I, I want to build up to this new Adams Family because I think each Adams Family has had a slightly different take on it. So like the original mm. comic strips were a bit more a bit more monstrous, a bit more ghoulish. Mm. The the sitcom was a bit more ha ha. They're different from normal people mm. and. Isn't that kind of funny? And a yeah. lot of the storylines would be mostly based off of Gomez and Morticia Adams. Yeah. About their relationship or her getting a new hobby or him wanting to do some kooky thing, whatever. And it's just yeah. about them mostly. Mm. There were some inner, there was some stuff in the middle there. There was like a attempt to do a reboot, and there was an animated series where Jodie Foster was in it, which was weird. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, young Jodie Foster was. Okay. I think she might have even played Pugsley. Uh, J- Jodie Foster played Pugsley. I'm actually, now I'm going to look this up because right. I, I feel like that might be true. Uh, back when she was a child actor, and that yeah, wasn't yeah. weird. Um, mm. Girls play uh, young boy roles in animation all the time because yeah. their their voices aren't going to change. Grown grown women, more yeah. typically, but yeah, it's, yeah. So like, like Rocky you know, the Flying June Foray did a lot of those, and you know, yeah. Tress McNeil does a lot of those. Still does a lot of those. Yeah, she was day. Pugsley in the 1973 Adams Family TV series. Was Jodie Foster? Wow, weird, right? <laughs> it's kind of fun. Uh, and then uh, Barry Sonnenfeld in the in the 1990s, we had this weird wave of movies that were adapted from old sitcoms, and I think. It Family was kind of right at the forefront of that. Yeah, and and they were all kind of tongue in cheek. I think the Brady Bunch movie uh, was the one that really sort of is the centerpiece of that trend because it made it really meta. The idea yeah. was every, the Bra- the Brady Bunch, which everyone sees as kind of like 
mired in this weird fake sitcom world where everything, the, everything is ultra wholesome. The the Brady Bunch hasn't changed, but everyone else is in the nineties. Yeah, that's like the, the gag. They're still dressed in the seventies. They, they behave like they do on the sitcom, but they leave the house, and it's the red, the ordinary world out there. One of my it's favorite this, this weird yeah meta gag. One of my favorite scenes in that movie is when all the neighbors are talking about how weird the Bradys are. It's like I was in their house once. I used the bathroom. They didn't have a toilet. <laughs> they, where do they keep it? They gotta have one. <laughs> But Adam oh, Sandler. All right, this is a car, Jack. Oh well, of course this is a car. But my name's not Jack. This is Greg. <laughs> uh, oh, are you a jeans model? What? What? What brand? Guess. Uh, okay. Uh, Levi's. Gosh, gosh, gosh. No, guess jeans. Um, I digress. Uh, but Adam Sandler is one of the best ones, and I think Adam Sandler is the one that actually like works as a movie even if you've never seen the show because Brady yeah. Bunch you kind of have to know the sitcom existed mm. it's still brilliant the, the first two Brady Bunch live action movies of the 90s are really really funny but The Addams Family is a fully complete exciting wonderful mm. world and it, it came out right when Tim Burton was sort of at the height of his power. He yeah. had made Batman. It was I think the same year as Batman Returns. Around there uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Around the same time and there was this uh, sort of hunger in the public eye for kind of goth outsider stories. Yeah, uh, and you know, the, the, this was the 1990s. The counterculture was was much more powerful. Well, it was the culture yeah. now. I, yeah, I guess so. And yeah. and be, be, being an outsider was something to cherish and and hold close to your chest. Just the opposite of what we have right now. But uh, this this idea that here's a family of freaks monsters and outsiders who just love it mm-hmm. and we're gonna make it look like a tim burton movie and we're gonna cast it perfectly oh my god the, <laughs> the casting the casting on the adams family movie is mm. so fucking spot on because in addition to you got christopher lloyd as uncle fester mm. and i prefer his uncle fester his uncle fester feels like he actually would be hired to rob graves like every other uncle fester i've seen is kind of this this funny whiny talking mm. guy like no i'm actually scared of christopher lloyd's uncle fester <laughs> and i love that uncle fester mm. but you got angelica houston as morticia who i i love the original as well but mm. she just brings this this knowing Wink. I don't know <laughs> don't, what. It's so don't sexy. Don't torture yourself, Gomez. That's my job. <laughs> so yeah, she, she had a, a sort of a more sultry quality, and uh, we had Christina and Ricci as Wednesday, yeah, who, who at when, the time when she was, was only like eleven or twelve at the time of the movie. Well, uh, and at the time, she flat out said that you know I wasn't really much of an actor at the time. I was just doing Winona Ryder and Beetlejuice. Oh, there she, you go. She yeah. flat out just said that because she was a young actor. She hadn't come into her instrument yet, mm. and she figured it out very quickly, and she became a really great actor. But yeah, the pièce de résistance <laughs> was casting Raul Julia as Gomez. Raul, John Aston as Gomez is a delightful, wonderful, perfect creation. Mm. Raul Julia is that creation if he Plus, wants to fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Like he, he, so he gave he gave us the the Gomez Adams that fucks yeah. and uh, <laughs> he's such a Lothario but he's charming and he's mm. wonderful and he's funny mm. he is so goddamn funny <laughs> Just, that that Adams family movie is is it's one of those films you bring it up and people love it but it's not rarely at the top of anyone's lists weirdly enough Adams uh, family values which wasn't as popular at the time I think mm. it surpassed it. In terms yeah. of people's estimation. And it's well, wonderful, too. It's great. I, I think because it focuses more on Wednesday Adams, and it has a story where she goes off to a normie summer camp mm-hmm. with all of the, the, the pinks and normals, and uh, she 
is forced into like a happiness like shed for a portion. She comes out and starts grinning and you can tell she's lost her mind a little bit. Yeah, she's smiling for the first time ever and it freaks people uh, out. Until she snaps and murders everyone at the camp and it's as a comedy film. Yeah, Christine Baranski and Peter McNichol end up roasting on a spit (laughs) while everyone's got their forks and knives and these are kids. They just ate two people. They ate two people alive and this is a comedy film. And Joan Cusack plays the villain Mm. in that one and Joan Cusack is one of the very few actors who consistently gets Oscar nominations for comedy oh. <laughs> which we know it was Working Girl and in and out both hilarious performances she should have been nominated for Adam's Family yeah. Values she should have won for Adam's yeah. Family Values brilliant those two movies are brilliant there yeah. was also a TV movie that no one hardly anyone remembers mm. uh, called Adam's Family Reunion which I just did a write up for for Bloody Disgusting just sort of re- revisiting it um, and that one because it was made after Raul Julia passed away he passed away in the mid 90s and it was very very sad and uh they couldn't bring anyone back after that, so they decided to do it with Tim Curry. Which is fine casting. That's actually good casting. He's, he, he's not the sexy Lothario. He does more of the John Aston thing, but mm. he's really good in it. Daryl Hannah is a surprisingly good Morticia. Uh, I, which I, I haven't seen that movie, and I, I don't see it, so I'd have to see it. She, see she she's does, so lustful <laughs> in that one. Like, it's like she's trying to compensate for just how like unsexual Tim Curry made it. Mm. So now like every, she's like always like one step away from an herbal essence Senses commercial every <laughs> single time, um, but um, it, it's uh-huh. not it's not terrible. It, if it would if it had, if we'd never had the Barry Sonnenfeld films uh-huh. and they'd just done that TV movie, I think it'd be very fondly remembered. Yeah. Um, but it just isn't as good as the Barry Sonnenfeld mm. films. It just it's not even close. But it's not terrible if you can track it down. If you like the Adams Family, it ain't bad. Mm. Um, and then it just kind of went fallow for a while. There was a very short lived live action TV version that I think lasted two seasons. And, like, no one remembers it even. Mm. And now, here we are. And they decided to do an animated version with characters that look like Charles Adams' actual illustrations. This was, uh, for a moment, going to be a Tim Burton film. And it was going to be, uh, after he had made Corpse Bride, he was going to do a stop-motion animated version Mm -hmm. of The Addams Family. I got to see a screen test of the, the animation like some designs of the animation characters at uh, the Tim Burton LACMA exhibit. I love that idea. And if uh, the script it was, was good, it probably would have been fucking awesome. Yeah, and it was going to be in black and white. Uh, the the dolls were modeled almost directly off of the Chaz Adams drawings. Right. Uh, I know Johnny and Depp was going to star as Gomez because, of course, he was because because that's yeah. Who else? Who else would Tim Burton cast? Probably Helena Bonham Carter as Morticia. As Morticia yeah, yeah, it writes itself, but Christina good at the time. Yeah. Uh, that that production, I think, was the one that ultimately mutated into what we got this year. Uh, this CGI animated film, like you said, uh, it's there. The characters are designed much more closely to the original Chaz Adams drawings. I love the design of the characters. Yeah. Um, I think they made them look really monstrous, especially Pugsley. <laughs> yeah, Pugsley's a weird little creep in this one. Yeah, like, like <laughs> Pugsley's, yeah, this, this little creep who's into explosions and, like, throwing bombs at his dad. I feel like I knew that kid. <laughs> like, the kid who, the one kid you'd go to to get the firecrackers. I had a hard time, it's weird for me because I actually think the uh, the actual cast they got for this animated movie mm for the most part, would have been the perfect live-action cast. Well, Because you've got Oscar Isaac as Gomez. Oscar Isaac would have been a great Gomez. He is a great Gomez. Charlize Theron as Morticia? I'd buy it. Yeah. I think she'd be great. Uh, you got Finn Wolfhard as Pugsley? He's okay. He's from Stranger Things. I could buy All it. Right. Uh, uh, Nick Kroll as Uncle Fester? 
sure. Yeah, Nick yeah, Kroll. That's fine with that. That's Nick, fine. Nick Kroll, who he plays Uncle Fester, and he's doing the exact same voice he does as Coach Steve on the series Big Mouth. Oh, I didn't see He's it. only got a couple voices, I guess. Uh, and you got, and then, she, she's too old for it in live action, but good casting. Chloe Grace Moretz as Wednesday Adams. Yeah, yeah. She's playing a 13-year-old here, and she's yeah. like 25 now. Right. But she's yeah. like the one person who wouldn't fit. But she yeah. basically played this role in Tim Burton's Dark Shadows anyway. Yeah, more or less. I'm a werewolf. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> that movie is very underrated. It's incredibly underrated. Like I, lo- I like Dark Shadows It's a lot. not his best work but, by any um, stretch, but that's a pretty fun movie. When you realize that Tim Burton once had an opportunity to make this, you realize that would have been right. Because Tim Burton <laughs> made... I mean... That's been sort of the bulk of his career, finding the pre-existing property that kind of fits his sensibility anyway. Yeah, a lot and of just, And matching it up. Sweeney, Sweeney Todd, Dark Shadows, just give it to Tim Burton, he'll do it. Oh, okay, and he did. Yeah, he actually doesn't uh, have that many original movies in his in his. No, no, he's got like three or four. Yeah. Uh, and even and those the, are often based off of nostalgic things, like the career of Ed Wood. Right, right, yeah. right. Even Big Fish was based on a book. Yeah. Um, uh, but all of his films are about outsiders and about how they kind of savor being outsiders. Uh, Nightmare, even the Nightmare Before Christmas, which I know he didn't direct, uh, is it's about based on his story. Is about how involved. how how uh, the what are the monsters doing when it's not Halloween? Well, it turns out they have a mayor and they just sort of hang around town and do weird crap. And they get ready for the next Halloween. <laughs> yeah, that's all they do. They're just getting ready for Halloween. They're doing homework. Yeah. It's like Monsters Inc. Before that, we had Monsters Inc. Uh, you know, Edward Scissorhands is about this sort of bizarre Frankensteinian creature that has to move into sort of the ordinary world. And becomes an outsider artist. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then when he makes a, a biography like Ed Wood, Ed Wood was an outsider. He worked with, you know, misfits and dope addicts. So Look, as... get off the counter. <laughs> Come on, buddy. You're an outsider and I love you, but knock it off. And the Adams family were kind of the proto-example of what Tim Burton sort of codified in his films. This whole family of loving, lovable monsters who believe in murder and death and love. Yeah. There's no animosity towards <laughs> no, what they do. That's no, just no. their lifestyle. Like one, one of the early Chaz Adams comics and the first scene of the Barry Sonnenfeld movie is the, the community, the uh, uh, or locals are coming by doing to do some Christmas caroling. And they're at the Adams family house, which is this gigantic, horrifying edifice. And they're singing Christmas carols. And, and uh, in the movie, we pan up the building and see that the entire Adams family is pouring molten lead on them. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, great. And and, and those are our heroes. <laughs> Um, so, and when they, when they turned out that they got, uh, to direct this, Mm. uh, Greg Tiernan and Conrad Vernon, who directed Sausage Party, uh, which, you know, was a hit R-rated CG animated movie that's hard to pull off and in, uh, American markets. Yeah. Uh, and a movie which, you know, it's, it's it's in your (laughs) face and sloppy and dumb, but it's also daring to tackle some serious issues about religion. Yeah. So I thought, okay, maybe they'll do something interesting with this. And we've, we, our opinions differ slightly on this movie. I know you like it less than I do, but okay. <laughs> I think, I think, I think we can both agree. Uh-huh. Uh, 
I don't think they tried very hard on this one. This feels like a very straightforward, mm. uncomplicated little kid version of the it, Addams Family. It, 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 well, they did make it more kid-friendly, which, you know, it means you can't have a, quite as macabre a joke. There's not going to be quite as many decapitations no. in a kid movie. I think there could be. Why not? Well, we, we but, were kids and we saw the Addams Family. I was like nine when I saw the Addams Family. Yeah, I, I was in high school already. I yeah, I was a little young. Yeah. But I, was, I was nine when mm. I saw the Addams Family. And it was I got it. I saw I saw Wednesday strap Pugsley into an electric chair mm. playing a game called Is, Is There, there a, a God, God? Yeah. and then killing Pugsley. Mm. And I was fine no, because we, it was there was a tone to it. It was obviously a joke. Right. It was obviously slapstick so and it wasn't real. There's a way to do that macabre humor that these filmmakers are clearly not interested in doing. It's not a very hip for us sense of humor to have right now, I guess. Mm. And so they turned the the Adams family into something a little bit less dynamic. We'll just say that. Um, less macabre, less edgy. Way less they're, edgy. They're, they're sanding them down a lot. Now, there's still some cute bits, but it's less edgy. The, it starts promisingly because the first shot is a close-up of Morticia putting on her makeup, and it turns out her makeup is the ashes of her dead parents. That Okay, you, th- you, you snagged me there. Also, uh, uh, it's got this awesome Christina Aguilera uh, song, My Heart is a Haunted House, which mm. I'm like, I like this song so much it fits the Adams family. <laughs> and it turns out it's like the wedding march because we're seeing Morticia and Gomez get married, mm, get which we've never seen the, before. The, the origin of the, the Adams family. I, I'm glad we didn't spend the entire mm. movie on the origin. I think that would have been tedious. But as a prologue, yeah, OK. Mm. They get married. And then no sooner are they married than all of the villagers come in with their torches and pitchforks because the Adamses are too weird. Mm. And then they get driven out of town. Yeah, the Adamses, uh, like they don't have any sort of crime other than being kind of strange. At least not that we've seen. Yeah. And so they get driven out of town, and as Morticia, Morticia is like, I want to go somewhere we will be safe and mm-hmm. and we won't have any you know worries and won't be driven out of town anymore. And he's, Gomez says, I will take you somewhere so horrible, so terrible, somewhere where no one in their right mind would be caught dead in. Mm-hmm. Cut to New Jersey. Uh huh. Isn't that cute? It's, it's a tired joke, but yeah. whatever, it works. They go to New Jersey. They they run into Lurch with their car. Turns out Lurch was an escapee from a, a mental <laughs> asylum. And the mental asylum is now abandoned. Oh. And so they buy it and turn it into their house. And there's a ghost there. I don't remember the ghost in anything else. But there's a mm. ghost there who wants them to get out. Mm. And they just sort of get used to it. It's like, get out! Oh, we have a ghost. <laughs> He's always grumpy before well, his coffee. And yeah, then they the, pour coffee down a toilet well, and the house calms down. That, that was one of the jokes I liked. So it's like, get one. out! Oh, you're so grumpy until you've had your coffee <laughs> um and then we cut to about 13 years later uh, yeah, they, have, they have two kids now wednesday and wednesday and pugsley pugsley's about to have essentially his bar mitzvah yeah which it's, uh, it's in, his sword mazurka yeah it's what they call it he has to perform a sword mazurka which is this very complicated sword dance in front of the extended adam's family that's going to come in from out of town to witness this thing mm-hmm. and he's stressed out because he doesn't know how to work a sword he's much more about bombs yeah he's an explosives expert yeah. <laughs> uh, and wednesday is you know she's she's getting to be a teenager she's like 13 and her her rebellious streak is is peeking through well she, they've been homeschooled they've actually never left their house mm-hmm. and their house is covered in fog and what they mm-hmm. don't realize is that on the other side of the fog mm-hmm. is a like it's like Tim Burton's suburb from Edward Scissorhands, like way mm. too weird and perfect. It's actually called Assimilation, yeah. which feels like a joke from 25 years ago, but whatever. Um, and uh, 
there's a there's a woman who has a reality TV show about fixing up houses. And she's played she's by made, Alice and Janney. She plays all the houses look the same, and she's cleaning up the whole town. And apparently, she just drained the moat, so now the fog is lifted, mm. and everyone can see at the top of a hill this giant macabre <laughs> mansion that ruins the whole skyline. Mm. And so she shows up and says, "Hey, we need to fix your house." Mm. And they're like, "Uh, okay, sure, okay." Well, she uh, and, and, and another jo- there are two jokes I appreciated. They they bring in a camera crew. Okay, we're gonna fix up this house, and the house starts to try to eat them. They've got like man eating plants and a living bear rug, and one of them like sort of vanishes into an, an aperture in the wall. And unfortunately, we do see him again later in the movie. I would have loved if he was just gone from the film after that. <laughs> well, he never uh, he never does leave. That's true. <laughs> like he just lives there now. <laughs> he just become part uh, of this. But yeah, Alice and Janney whips out her spray paint can just like... Um, uh, in Beetlejuice. I was going to say Lydia. Beetlejuice. Not Lydia Dietz. What's... Uh, Catherine O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara's character's first name. I forgot oh her character's God. name. The Catherine O'Hara character. Yeah. Like, yeah, breaks into the Maitland's house and just starts spray painting on the wall. Same deal. She gets out some green, green spray paint. We need to cut off this and do this and she's just like... Painting all over their house, and they look around at all the paint stripes and says, "Well, that's good. That's perfect. We like all the paint stripes." <laughs> and what was your name again, Bridget? Okay, run, Bridget! Ha ha ha! And then, and then the film stops being funny immediately. Well, <laughs> there's a couple of good bits. There's I will say this: there's a couple of good little bits, like little, little bits, things. Yeah, like, there's like one bit where at, uh, Wednesday uh, meets the daughter of the villain of the piece, mm. the one who runs reality TV yeah. show, um, and the daughter of the villain. Is starts getting more goth, and mm. Wednesday, mostly just to piss off her mom, just because yeah. he's at that phase, starts getting a little less goth. And there's one scene I thought was really funny, where she comes home, and she's exactly the same, but she's got a barrette. <laughs> a little, yeah, a little pink, colorful, oh, there's like rainbow barrette in her yeah. hair. And like, it's like a unicorn. Morticia is mortified, and she like, she actually, she's so pale normally, she fills with red, yeah. and then two bats fly up to her neck and drain her back down again, and then she <laughs> continues the conversation. And then she just says, everyone knows pink is a gateway color. I approve of the horse with a spear oh. through its head, but other than that, I don't. That, that would have been funny if they hadn't, uh, had an int- the the flip side of it, you know, we because we got to see the Alice and Janney character, mm-hmm. like her the daughter character, yeah. started going through the same sort of rebellious streak and in spending time with Wednesday became a goth like yeah. almost immediately she shaves half of her head, started wearing like really heavy black eye makeup and black clothes. We already got the gag with the inverse with Agreed. Wednesday. We, the whole gag with the Adams family is everything is inverted in their world, yeah. and the joke works because we understand what the real world looks like. We don't need the juxtaposition. Yeah. It makes the joke too obvious. No, I'm with you on this. And there was always juxtaposition, but there was usually pushback. There usually wasn't somebody who thought it was cool. Mm. The only like Adams family, there was always like. In the Barry Sonnenfeld films, there was always one person who came around to the Adams family. Yeah. Like, the, the wife, Dan Hedaya's wife, ends up marrying Cousin It. That's right. Or, and uh, they have a child together. Yeah, or sequel. David Crumholtz in Adams Family Values. He's, mm. uh, he's at the summer camp and he ends up becoming Wednesday's paramour. Mm. Like, there's like one person. So I, I was kind of eased into that. That didn't bug me so much, but it is superfluous to mm. the gag. Well, but she shouldn't be transforming into a goth. She should just already be a goth and move in with the Adams. That would be fun, too. That would have been I agree that more been fitting. I, I, here's my thing with this movie. I find it mostly just sort of harmless, and like there's a couple of cute jokes. For me, this movie only functions in one way. Hmm. It introduces little kids to the Adams family. And if they hmm. like this movie, well, good news, you don't have to wait. We can show you the Barry Sonnenfeld films right now. 
Right. That's the value of it. It's just mm. keeping it alive and showing it to little kids. I wish it had had more personality to itself. The cast is spot on. Mm. There's a couple of good gags here and there. And, and like I said, the character design is great. It's not it's a bad good. looking film. No, no. Well, I think it's. I think the character design is solid. I actually found the film lacking in detail. Like the environments look kind of kind of uh, fake. The, in, it, in a it way, was, that, it was a certain kind of style. I think they were going for something like uh, Gendy Tartakovsky a little bit. I feel, but Gendy Tartakovsky doesn't make his worlds feel unlived in. And I feel mm. like you look at Hotel Transylvania; they're clean, mm. but they do look like they're interactive environments. This felt like. Visually, it was like an ambitious but still relatively low budget made for TV cartoon special. Mm. Like, that's the look it had sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that it just feels like they kind of cheaped out on the environments, maybe. I, that, I, I that, that, you know, that's, that's fair. That's, yeah, it, yeah, it's not the end of the world, but mm. I do think it's a critique and it kept me from getting super immersed. I kept mm. remembering I was watching a movie, um, which, yeah, of course I am, but no, you're, not yeah. to, you're not supposed to think about it. All right. Um, so. I find this movie mostly relatively harmless, and I was a little mm. surprised when I saw your reaction on Twitter, mm. and you found the you felt that the film sort of supported the Adams assimilating into society. I saw it the other way around, well, where the, the society got used to the Adams. But that's the problem, isn't it? Mm. Uh, the Adams family function as outsiders. They don't give a damn about the rest of the world. They're perfectly content in their monster bubble. Yeah. And they love being in their monster bubble. And in fact, we should envy how happy they are. <laughs> they are enviable characters. They are outsiders who are happier than we are. Yeah. And that really worked well in the 90s because people sought to be outsiders. People wanted to leave the mainstream. There wasn't anything that the mainstream was offering anybody any longer. It had fallen apart and everybody was seeking alternatives. That was weird to the me point out. where it sort of took over the mainstream and that that's that was the irony of the whole thing. The thing that weirds me out is mm. when people have like nostalgia for like the non-outsider stuff in the nineties, like when I found out like Full House was coming back to Netflix mm. and people cared, yeah, I was like, like, "Wait a minute, who watched Full House? I don't know anyone who watched Full House. Full House was the stuff we were flicking boogers at while we were going to see Tim Burton movies. That would be like, was... oh my god, we're gonna do a huge big budget movie reboot of mm. Chicago Hope. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> no one cared. People watched it at the yeah. time, but no one cared. And, like, and that's the weird thing. Now, all of the big nostalgia properties from the 90s are the mainstream stuff. People talking about Friends. You know, there's all, yeah. the, all these think pieces about Friends. We didn't watch Friends. Well, a lot of people watch Friends. A lot of, a a lot lot of people, people watch, watch Friends. That's to be fair. We, it was must-see TV. If we, we didn't watch, they killed us. We, that was what the 90s we, were. We, what I mean, being like me and our the other sort of goth-tinged, Rocky Horror-attending theater kids. Right. Who were, you know, exchanging horror stories that we wrote in the margins of our notes and making out backstage. We were watching Friends. Fuck Friends. I wanted to be part of the Midnight Society. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be part of the Midnight Society. I, I, I personally wasn't making out that much, No, frankly. no one was. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, see what I see your but point. We, I see your point. We've reached this point now where we don't have an outsider culture anymore, or at least not that we can recognize. Well, it's, it, out, it's out there, but it's outside. It, it's flip-flopped but, in a weird way, because now yeah. the most... It, the stuff that used to be outsidery, stuff like comic books, yeah. that's super duper mainstream now. Mm. So, 
But people still think of themselves because they like comic movies as being kind of outsiders and they get really defensive if you start criticizing comic movies mm. like Martin Scorsese. I disagree with him though they're not quote unquote cinema. Mm. Well, like that's, I think that's semantics. Yeah, I, think it's I was semantics. about to say it's just semantics. I think it's semantics, yeah. but I think I think that was a weird choice. The way he, the way he said it, I agree with him. But yeah. Yeah, no, I, I understand his basic intent, mm. but I still think it was a weird way to say it. And I understand taking issue with the word choice, but mm. beyond that, you're not wrong. It's the mainstream wow. right now. It's not the most interesting filmmaking out there. A lot of it is incredibly entertaining. Every once in a while, it's really interesting. Mostly, it's kind of safe. We go mm. to a Marvel movie because we can feel comfortable knowing what we're going to get, more will, or less. And also that everyone else is going to be talking about mm-hmm. this. We're this is what the, community. The, yeah, what the community is. This, this is mm. the culture that counterculture is supposed to run counter- Two, yeah. and this is one of the reasons that it was sort of like not to keep harping on about it, but like Joker, mm-hmm. it like it evokes counterculture, but makes it mainstream now. Yeah, and yeah. so it, it's less cool. <laughs> it's well, not and, actual counterculture. But <laughs> in, into the it's so, so I think it's really curious that we're trying to resurrect the Adams family in this particular cultural milieu. Take a drink, mm. <laughs> where there is no counterculture, and yet these are counterculture heroes. I almost want to see so seeing any story yeah. where the Adams family it, it opens up their doors and welcomes the community in, or goes out into the community and the community says, "Well, they're just sort of weird neighbors." No, the community should be deathly afraid of them, uh-huh. and they should be happy about that. I'm going I'm to disagree with you here because I do think yeah. part of—I mean, it wasn't the initial premise, perhaps. It's been a while since I've read. I used to have a book of all the strips, but it's been a while since I read it. Maybe I'm remembering it slightly wrong. But regardless of the original strips, the 1960s sitcom did treat normies that way. Mm. They were weird, kooky people that the Adams family didn't get. They didn't try to kill them all. They Mm. were just sort of we have to be part of it. We have to be part of the of the neighborhood, and we have to deal with them. And I don't understand why they painted sunflowers instead of moonflowers, but whatever. (laughs) Takes all kinds, I guess. Like there was a certain begrudging acceptance, but they were baffled by it, and they never interacted with them in any kind of meaningful way. Yeah, they had to come over to their house to Uh, do. Occasionally, I remember an episode where Lurt had a crush on like a trout like a Mary Kay sale <laughs> yeah that was a cute one. Yeah. one no there was always there was always like someone who had to come over like there was mm. one where Morticia was uh, trying to become an artist like a sculptor mm. and she had to have like art critics come over and appraise her work right and uh, they didn't know what to make of it so Gomez just paid them to say it's brilliant mm. and then he paid them to buy it <laughs> <laughs> um Whatever. You're not wrong. Mm. It, it's a very safe this, version of the Adams family, which kind of runs counter to the idea of the Adams family. The, the whole idea of the Adams family is they're they're the dark mirror. They're the dark mirror of the, the typical sitcom world. And yeah. that I saw the, the typical sitcom world of assimilation, uh, assimilation New Jersey, getting along with the Adams family. Like the whole arc was about how they were going to be more accepted by this community that we were supposed to hate at, at the start. I mean, you're not supposed to trust it. They're singing a cult song. Yeah. Like a song about how much we love everything, and if you don't, we'll, we'll like, torture you until you do. So so do we... We're supposed to hate this culture. They're led by Alice and Janney. We're not supposed to let the... The Addams Family should destroy them by the end. Would have been nice. I I would like to have seen an ending where they, you know, something happens or they they cause something to happen where the swamp rises up again and swallows assimilation (laughs) back and they're safe again. That's the way this movie should end. Yeah, it should have had, I think the it way, should have had a darker sense of humor. By, a little darker. I mean, by I taking, movie, by but. taking away all of the edge and all of the darkness and turning these counterculture icons 
that are very dear to me, frankly, (laughs) into something safe and sitcom friendly is a fucking disgrace. I think it's ironic. All I'm saying is I think it's ironic that you're complaining Mm. that a a franchise, which is largely defined by a sitcom, is calling it a sitcom-like. I think that's (laughs) like... I mean, that's part of it. Yeah. I think this is one version of the Addams Family. I do mm. think it's a limp version of the Addams Family. Yeah. I would love to, again, I would love, you take the live action cast, just take the take the voiceover cast, put them mm. in the live action version. I would love to see that. Mm. That would be great. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I don't hate this. Okay. I think it's okay for little kids, and I, I think it mostly works as a gateway. If you're even remotely interested in this, good news. We have tons of sitcoms which are perfectly good for kids. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the humor level is just right. <laughs> I think you'll love them. And if for, like, slightly older kids, like 8, 9, or whatever like mm-hmm. that, the Barry Sonnefeld films are perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I don't hate this, but I totally see all your criticisms, and yeah, yeah. you're not really wrong. Although I think you might be a little harsh. Uh, I, I was enjoying a lot of the gags. Uh, the characters are fine. The performances are fine. There are little bits here and there. There's a yeah. bit where Gomez goes into a coffee shop, and there's a really wonderful shot of his gigantic body sort of towering over the barista. That's just beautifully <laughs> laid out. We get to see Thing, the severed hand, sort of like crawl up on his shoulder and just freaks everybody out. It's like, yeah. I don't want any of this coffee. Give me some raw grounds. <laughs> That was fun, good. fun bits. Well, there was, uh, but, but it yeah. goes to a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Adams family are and what they represent. Uh, I, I don't think mm. you're entirely wrong, although I do think there is some precedent. Mm. Anyway, mm. it's it's like it's like it's like um, Batman, for example. Not 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 that everything is Batman, but like mm. there's so many different versions of Batman now mm. that if you do a silly version of Batman, it's not coming from out of nowhere. And yeah. if you do a really dark version of Batman, that's also not coming from out of nowhere. Like mm. any interpretation of Batman, pretty much has some precedent now, so it's not like you're betraying the character because the character's legacy is really varied. Mm. The Adam Sandler's legacy isn't that varied, but there are different tones it's had over the yeah, decades, well, and I think some of them are lighter than others. And I, I think this this is exactly the wrong one. Fair enough. Let's move on. Mm. Uh, speaking of outsider families... Okay. Speaking of uh, uh, the best... Like one of the best movies of the year. Uh, were we <laughs> yeah. speaking about one of the best? We were well, not. But now let's do it now. Let's talk about Parasite. Yeah, speaking, yeah. Speaking of, uh, um, yeah. F- this is another film about a family that lives on the outside. This uh, take it takes place in Korea. Uh, a single family has found a way to be hired one by one. Mm-hmm. By the same millionaire family in the same town. So, however, in yeah. order to do that who was the first one that was hired it was, the, it's it was the teenage the, the, son the teenage son the, is hired as a tutor at first yeah, he's hired as an english tutor mm. for a teenage girl mm. and he doesn't know english that well but he knows a little bit more than her so he's faking it and, and, and he's making a good show of it and then it turns out that he has a scheme to get his family hired by this family in every capacity we're going to mm. get rid of their chauffeur yeah. and we're going to install dad as the chauffeur yeah. we're going to get uh, the the little the son the millionaire uh-huh. son his like does weird art oh he needs an art teacher what do you i happen to know an art teacher it's his sister but he doesn't tell them that mm. so they every all of a sudden everyone working for this family is related mm. and the rich family who has employed them doesn't know that yeah and they're basically being scammed mm. that's the first chunk of the movie i think it would be a crime to tell anyone where it goes from there mm. suffice it to say mm. parasite is one of the funniest most <laughs> suspenseful 
scariest, <laughs> most insightful, mm. broadly entertaining movies I've seen all year. It's mm. like there really isn't a film like this. I'm trying to think. Like, mm. what would you even compare this to? Like, it's uh, not easy. I feel like I've seen something like this, but I need to sort of dig into my. I've, I've seen con artist movies, people yeah. like sort of insinuating people into mm. their lies, but. Specifically, where this movie starts and where it goes mm. is so unique. And I cannot recommend this movie enough. Mm. Like, it takes you everywhere. Okay. It's a whole journey. Like, it's every, <laughs> up and down, every yeah. emotion. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm torn how to talk about it, though, because I really don't want to spoil anything. Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's directed by Bong Joon-ho, uh, who has previously done really... He did a, a film called Snowpiercer, which was a really rather clumsy and adolescent uh, metaphor for class. I think it's better than uh, giving it credit for, but fair enough. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of Snowpiercer. We both hated um, Okja. We both hated it, which was another really clumsy film about social issues. And uh, However, I was sort of afraid that yeah. Bong Joon-ho was really interested in telling uh, social message pictures, but didn't really have a, a good like talent for it. Well, had you seen... Because before that shot, because mm. I... Um, I saw Mother as yeah, well, and I, I think Mother is really terrific. I, I didn't see Mother. Uh, mm. The Host is a monster mm. movie he made in 2006. I haven't seen The Host. Uh, really fun monster mm. movie about a giant monster in like the rivers in Korea, mm. and they get polluted, um, and there's a mutation, and it runs around killing people, and mm. it's a really fun monster movie. Um, it's a little social commentary, but not a lot. Mm. The movie I recently saw that he did in 2003, which was about Korea's first serial killer that we know of, uh, it's called Memories of Murder. Mm. Holy crap, that's a good movie. <laughs> I probably should have mentioned that mm. when we did our uh, uh, episode about the best movies of the of 2000s. Mm. Uh, because it's kind of like the Korean Zodiac. Mm. They never caught the guy. Mm. And it's all about the really terrible police investigation. <laughs> and how they kept trying to frame people and it didn't go right. And mm. it's kind of funny, but it's also incredibly tragic and sad oh. and scary. <laughs> and... Um, Clearly, Bong Joon-ho is talented and very creative, but mm. uh, although I liked Snowpiercer quite a bit, I, I was not enthused after Okja. Parasite mm. is a step in another direction, Well, it, it's, it's him finally doing what he's always been interested in correctly. Uh, he is... He's always been interested in class. Mm -hmm. All of his films tend to be about class and the privileges that the rich have. Uh, this is This is very much about how uh, those who live in poverty have to survive by their wits, and they're seen as very sympathetic characters, and their skills are seen as very kind of cool. Well, their, also, their ability to deceive is is kind of a superpower. Well, you look at the movie, Where, the movie's mm, title is Parasite. Mm, there, no matter who you are, if you're poor, mm, you're kind of leeching off the rich because they have to pay you. Yeah, well, and and... That's the way society is set up. It's the whole trickle down thing. It's like yeah. the, all the money is up here, and it just sort of eventually drip down to you. And, uh, but it's also a commentary on how the wealthy are living with complete blinders. They don't see the rest of the world. They don't understand hardship. And there's a lot of talk about planning big birthday parties and getting costumes and like letting him sleep in the yard and then hurrying up in the you know, first thing in the morning to set up a party around them. It's like, mm -hmm. how, how quickly yeah. can we get a cellist yeah, it's for like, our eight year old's birthday and, party? And of course to do that, they require a hundred people working their asses off because mm -hmm. they're getting paid to do it. And they don't really under, all they understand is if they pay money, they get it. It's like, Oh, and I'm working so hard. No, they're working hard. You're just paying them. Right. Um, and I think he's really, 
savvy in the way he presents the characters as alternately sympathetic, but also uh, each of them, even the, even the impoverished characters, as being kind of naive or uh, uh, like immature, like emotionally well, immature they're, in certain they're, ways. They're, they're, it's hard to say mm. like how much of what they're doing is a crime. There's certainly being mm. duplicitous. There's certainly a level of fraud involved yeah. and a certain level of... Uh, um, they're they're counterfeiting some of their like papers, so they look like they're not related. Yeah. But what boils down to is they get mm-hmm. hired and then they do the work. Yeah. <laughs> they do the work. They're getting mm-hmm. paid for the work that they do. Mm-hmm. They're just manipulating these people for their own ends. And mm-hmm. you, you brought it up briefly. Um, you, you can't help but respect them for that. <laughs> I, I, it's like um, it's almost like a heist movie where mm-hmm. like it's, yes, stealing is wrong. But if it's that hard, <laughs> surely, surely we can appreciate. It's like at some level, like let let Danny Ocean keep the money. Like he earned that money. Yeah. There's a, there's a good line in an otherwise bad movie, "Live Free or Die Hard," where uh, <laughs> where Timothy Oliphant, uh, uh, Bruce Willis is telling Timothy Oliphant, he's just a, he's just a crook and he doesn't deserve his money. He's like, you don't think I deserve to get paid for my work? Mm-mm. I'm working my ass off here, John. <laughs> I got I got henchmen running around the country. I've hacked the entire internet. Like, this was not easy. <laughs> Say what you will. This was not easy. There's a, a line kind of like that on the first Die Hard. It's like, yeah. you're nothing but a common thief. I'm an exceptionally good thief. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he, he, That took a lot to do what he did. Yeah, it's hard. Uh-huh. Like, and we, we respect that. Like, mm. it's one of the reasons why the remake of the Thomas Crown Affair is so much better than the original. Because in the original Thomas Crown Affair, if you've never seen it, they're both good movies, but uh, it's about a millionaire and then later on a billionaire in the remake who gets bored and decides to go on a crime spree. In the original, he plans and hires people to rob banks. Okay, you don't need the money, Mm. so it doesn't really seem that romantic. In the, the remake... He, he, he steals paintings yeah. and he steals them himself. Yeah, he does it himself. It's um, really difficult and complicated mm-hmm. and we respect him for it. And there's actually a bit where Dennis Leary plays one of the cops is trying to catch him mm-hmm. where he's just like, listen, I want to catch this guy. He's a pain in the ass. But let me tell you something. Before I did this case, I was catching murderers <laughs> and people who were beating their wives. If this guy wants to steal some swirls of paint, I don't care that much. <laughs> so you don't begrudge him mm-hmm. the crime. Mm. Here, for a while at least, until like the plot kind of kicks into high gear, they're duplicitous, but you can't help but admire them a little bit for yeah. it. They're pulling this shit together. Mm. It's a complicated scheme, and they're getting away with it. Mm. And really, I mean, like, I, I feel bad for, like, they pay lip service to the people whose lives they are destroying, like the chauffeur. yeah. And it's just like, like the, the, the original people that they're yeah deliberately trying to get fired so they can take their places. But at one point they do say, "Hey, did the chauffeur ever get hired?" Probably. Yeah. Like they know they always make engineered in such a way mm. that like they're never like fired amidst scandal. They're always fired, and they have to like sort of pretend it's something else. Mm-hmm. And so that person probably can get work again. Yeah. So really, it seems like no harm, no foul until about halfway through the movie when, when, <laughs> when uh, things uh, change. So something comes back to bite him in the ass, and that's all I'm going to say. It's so unpredictable mm. from that point on. And you know what? There's something I really love in this movie that isn't in a lot of movies anymore. Mm. Sneaking. <laughs> People don't sneak mm. anymore. They used to. They just like hide behind, you know, in corridors, mm. you know, trying not to get caught. There's, there's yeah, a wonderful scene where people are hiding under a table. Um, 
well, yeah. people are just doing stuff all around them. Yeah, and, just, yeah, yeah. and you know they can well, get caught at any second, and it's terrifying. Yeah, I was I, I was reminded actually of a really terrific film I saw a couple of years ago called Borgman. Oh, I never uh, saw that. Yeah, which yeah. is a, about a, a, a sort of a wealthy, well-to-do family, and it turns out the mom of the family knows this weird guy named Borgman who was introduced at the start of the film, living under the dirt in the woods. He was in, <laughs> he was literally in a hole. And he just sort of breaks out. He puts on a suit. He's like, hey, can I crash? It's like, oh, God, you're you're back. And they never explain what the relationship is. Mm -hmm. And he lives in the house and he's just sort of strolling around doing everything while the family is moving around the house, doing their thing. And he's just able to pass through hallways very casually and stay totally out of sight living in their house with them. God, that's great. It's really scary. That's a great movie, Borgman. It's one of those great fears that just someone is because you feel safe in your home. Mm -hmm. Doors are locked. The windows yeah, are latched. The, the you, whole home invasion you, you, thing. You, you, yeah. get the, you just get the sense that it's mm. just me and my yeah. cats or my my family or whatever. Mm. And just the idea that, no, there's someone else in there and you don't know where they are. <laughs> uh, that's really uncomfortable, actually. Mm. And you start looking. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> Parasite's a little difficult uh, it, to talk about sometimes. It's, it's a little difficult to talk about. And in fact, I think it's too long if it has any problems with it. Um I, everybody's kind of losing their minds for this one. I like it a lot. Okay. Um, I, I, I've stewed with it a little bit, and it's already faded a little bit in my estimation. I'm not sure it's going to be my number I, one I, I saw, of the year. I already saw it several weeks ago. I saw that it's the screening pretty early. Um, so, yeah, it, it might not make my top ten list, but I'm not going to say it's a bad film by any stretch. But it does have... Uh, maybe this is the right term, an overly masculine view of how to solve all the problems by the end. And it gets a little too extreme for my tastes. I don't think when it, it was already banking and winning on much more subtle ideas. I don't think I, 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 I disagree with that mm. take. I don't think it's, um, I don't think you could argue it's a masculine view. I don't think it's a masculine view on how to solve the problems because I think ultimately the film argues that they can't be solved. Mm. Um, and that this is the way they're tackled, mm. but I don't think they're solved. I don't think there any solution has come to. I think it's all just sad and tragic in a constant mm. loop and a constant state of teasing success in front of us, even though some people will literally yeah, never get yeah. there. Um, I don't think this is going to be my number one film of the year. It is almost definitely going to make my top ten. If I did it today, I definitely would be. Okay. Um, I think this is distinctive i think this is exciting mm. i think this is smart yeah i think it it because like you look at something like again joker <laughs> you look at the way joker like deals with with class mm. it just sort of brings it up <laughs> like parasite well, i mean that, you that can, movie's all about poverty but, well yeah. it is but at the same time i don't think it has a lot to say about it other than it no, sucks no, no. and that you know all oh, the systems are failing us man mm. true now what <laughs> now what is parasite mm. Parasite actually explores these issues in really complicated ways and uh, the way that we look down on people of different classes, no matter what class we're in, mm -hmm. and the way that that blinds us to certain really important truths and some very scary things. And yeah, I do think this is going to be a really interesting film to continue exploring over mm -hmm. time. I do think it's a very excellent piece of yeah. filmmaking, and I'm a huge I, fan. I'd love to see it again, because I think so much of this film hinges on a lot of its surprises, mm -hmm. that I'm wondering if its uh, ideas about class will hold up once once I kind of know where it's headed. Because mm -hmm. I, 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 I have only I'm seen it about once. That. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Well, I, mm -hmm. I think it will, but let's find out uh, mm -hmm. over time. Um, let's move on to... 
Okay, you saw one, and then I saw two. All right. So, but, well, you take the first one. Okay, then. I'll take the, This one's pretty short. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a new horror film that nobody's talking about with good cause called Mary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, an obscure, sucky movie. My favorite. Well, it shouldn't be obscure. It stars Gary Oldman and Emily Mortimer. Odd. All right. Those are great actors. Like Indeed, I know yeah. Gary Oldman is unpopular for a variety of reasons right now, but mm-hmm. he's been a great actor. And Emily Mortimer is one of our more underrated actors. I'm a huge fan. Mm-hmm. Um, so they. Did you ever see Lovely and Amazing? No, uh, no, I didn't see that one. That is great. Yeah, Lovely and Amazing is great. Uh, but uh, they, their husband and wife, mm-hmm. and uh, Gary Oldman is uh, he he captains a fishing boat. But it's not his boat. He's been working for people his entire life, and he's been wanting to buy his own boat. And so uh, Emily Mortimer finds a boat at auction, mm-hmm. and uh, it says, oh, you should check out this boat, and then we can talk about buying it. And he goes, and instead of buying the boat he should obviously buy, he ends up buying a haunted shipwreck. Hooray! It's a, sh- it's a ship. It's called Mary. It happens to be the name of their youngest daughter, so he thinks it's a sign. <laughs> and um, it's a fixer-upper. Pieces of the boat have been around for like over 100 years. Mm-hmm. And he thinks they should, they'll should. they be able to fix it up and char- make it and charter it and yeah. everything. And uh, he ultimately... It, it feels like he sold the cow for magic beans. Yeah. And Emily Mortimer takes him the task for it. Um, and it turns out the damn thing's haunted. It's haunted by a sea witch uh, who is after the kids. Okay, who plays the sea witch? I Just couldn't a, tell you. They're like performer? two shots. They're oh, okay. like two shots. Oh, okay. It's it's mostly like what you don't see. Yeah. Um, good idea. Hmm. I like all of that. I like the idea of a haunted boat at sea. Yeah, yeah. You've seen it a few times. Ghost ship is very gauche, but it's fun. Um, but uh, the because it's sound. First off, there's noises all the time. Uh-huh. There's all kinds of weird creaking noises and <laughs> wave it. splashes, and mm-hmm. it's dark and it's dark as pitch in the middle of the night. Yeah. Except for like moonlight and you see all the stars and everything like that. Nice. You're isolated, uh-huh. so the whole thing of why don't you leave the house is kind of a moot point. <laughs> like oh, the setup is grand, mm. the cast is good. Yeah, it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, shoot, it sucks. And one of the things that makes it suck is it start. It has a framing device. Uh huh. Where Emily Mortimer is like the only survivor and the cop is interrogating her about what happened. Mm-hmm. So first off, okay, well, I know some of what happened. Yeah. Secondly, if you pay attention to the first scene, all of the movie's mysteries are revealed right away. Uh-huh. So it's a pain in the ass. Because <laughs> it, it makes it a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Um, there's some good shots here and there, some spooky bits, but... A lot of the characters are really underwritten. Everyone except Gary Oldman and Emily Mortimer on that ship has no personality, no matter how much screen time they have, and it's mm. kind of a waste of time. Um, it just kind of doesn't work, and it's a shame, mm-hmm. because, again, good setup, good cast. Just never really tracks. And there's this weird thing. The only other weird thing about it is the way Emily Mortimer's character is presented. She's angry with her husband for making this huge purchase mm-hmm. without her. And then he apologizes. And then all of a sudden she says, no, you shouldn't apologize. I should apologize. I'm the idiot. And he says, yeah. What? And I'm like, okay, is this an abusive relationship? Because that could be something to explore in a horror thing mm-hmm. where the supernatural comes in and sort of blows it up or mm-hmm. lets her get a revenge. Uh, no, actually, it turns out she had an affair. Gary Oldman's mad and the movie is on his side. And that's it. 
So it he, has nothing to do with the witch. And it now has he has license to buy ghost ships. It, well, it just has nothing to do with anything. Like you have like like in The Shining, when Jack Nicholson, like you find out he's an alcoholic who hit his kid once, that's relevant later. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. If we found all that out and it had nothing to do with like if after all of that setup with the alcoholism and hurting mm. your kids, and then it turns out all the ghosts in The Shining wanted was uh, to have another party like they used to, mm. you'd be like, well, what the fuck was that other shit for? <laughs> what, what did you waste our time with that? What did it have to do with anything? It just doesn't connect. Mm. So the whole feeling feels just disconnected and laborious. And yeah, it's not worth seeing. It's not a terrible. Like if you found yourself watching it, you get through it, but it's not worth seeing. No, never mind. Yeah, sorry about that. Mm. But tell me about Gemini Man. Did you and did you see it in the f- uh, fast frame rate? I did. I saw Gemini Man is. Um, Supposed to be the highest grossing film of the week. <laughs> big, big, ambitious tech forward blockbuster starring, let's admit it, a faded blockbuster star. Uh, Will Smith hasn't had a big hit for a little while now. And <sighs> was his last big hit? Well, I guess Suicide Squad was a hit. Yeah, uh, a lot of that was him. It's not that was him. It was him and it was him and Margot Robbie like, yeah. together, and they had good chemistry together. Mm. I, I would say he was at least part. Okay, of so that. Suicide Squad. If, but even, even that was an, that's, was that's an not a, a well-regarded film, however. And it was an ensemble and wasn't relying entirely yeah, on him. I'm trying to because Will Smith used to be able to open a movie. Yeah, like literally any movie. Will Smith was in it. It would make money for a while. Aladdin. He just had a hit movie. Oh, you're right. And he was the only like really recognizable star in that. Okay, that's fair. Never okay. mind. I he's take on the it upswing. He's on the upswing. He, or he he's, was. He's, he's, he's sort of hit and miss, I guess, <laughs> is fair to say. This is a miss. Um, oh, yeah. Ang Lee uh, fell in love with high frame rate filmmaking. He made a film called uh, Billy Long... Billy, Billy Lynn's Long Billy Halftime Lynn's Walk. Long Halftime Walk. I want to call it uh, Billy Flynn um, from enough. Chicago. Uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which was shot in 120 frames per second. Now, if you remember high frame rate, um, Peter Jackson decided to shoot the first of the Hobbit films in high frame rate. I think he 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 shot all of them. He shot uh, all three of them, but I think (laughs) theaters that provided it started to dwindle by the third. Well, here's what what frame rate is, just for a primer, in case everyone doesn't know. I was was Um, about to get to this. Oh, I'm sorry. It's called Persistence of Vision. Where you see pictures in such a rapid succession, it looks like movement. Mm. But they're not actually moving. It's an illusion. Yeah. Um, you can do that. I mean, we've all used the flip book. Mm. With a couple of frames per second, you create the illusion of movement. Um, when we moved to synchronized sound, we needed to create a consistent frame rate so right. that we could synchronize the sound to the picture. Right. Car- car- uh, projectors weren't all running in the same frame rate. Some ran faster than others. Yes. Some of them were hand-cranked back in the day. So, so you were approximating yeah. it, but it wasn't consistent. And so, yeah, sound came along. We needed a frame rate. And we needed to choose how many frames per second would be in a film. And we needed, at the time, to pick as low as we could get away with because... Because film was expensive. <laughs> film was expensive, and only so much of it fit in the camera in the, in, in the first place. Mm. You could only fit about 15 minutes worth of footage in there yeah. at a time at 24 frames. So you add more frames, you can't do very long takes or anything. Mm. You can't do a lot of takes, and it ruins Just using your whole day film, yeah. So we decided on 24. 24 was considered the bare minimum we could get away with, where it looks pretty real. Yeah. Although, um, even at the time, from what I understand, of 
the the film scholars of the time said that 30 was the minimum mm-hmm. and they went below that anyway because it was yeah. still cheaper uh but yeah uh we've been at 24 frames a second ever since and there are a few, few exceptions here and there and pal the european tv well I, that, i'm talking about i'm talking about film in, yeah. in terms of like physical celluloid film that was all 24 frames a second and it yep. was that way for a century uh when we started moving into, yeah, like PAL and video formats and Betamax, they started doing uh, higher frame rates. Like, Just a little. Uh, and you see it when you watch, like, uh, news programs and cooking shows. Those still go with, like, high high de- uh, definition, high frame rates. Oh, like, look at, look at like, a difference between, mm. like, uh, especially some of the, like, the... BBC shows from the 90s and early 2000s mm. and you're just like this looks a little off well, it, a little weird it, but it, that's why it's because it's in PAL it's because it, it's higher it's, frame it's rate. in PAL it's a higher frame rate and for some reason that looks cheaper to our eye mm-hmm. and it goes to a, maybe a fundamental truth about cinema that there is perhaps a fundamental artificiality to it that we savor mm-hmm. and that is in fact necessary to tell the kind of stories that cinema has told up to this point. Case in point, when yeah. I saw uh, The Hobbit in mm-hmm. 60 frames per second, yeah. um, I saw the, they did the first one and then it wasn't popular, so they didn't bother releasing the others mm. in high frame rate. But I saw The Hobbit in 60 frames per second, and what I realized was, the, it, yeah, it was crystal clear. It was mm. really clear, because when you have it, there's, there's no like blurred motion in the middle, so everything looks really smooth and sharp. And it's, yeah. it's an impressive effect, I'll give you that. But the problem is, The Hobbit is really fake. Yeah, it's this big digital thing. So and so, what you're really doing is you're calling attention to how fake everything is, and yeah. everything looks like, not like well, you're immersed into this world of mm. elves and orcs, it looks like a bunch of people are walking around a soundstage. And the thing is... When you have this hyper-realistic frame rate to your films, and you are shooting a pretty crappy middle-of-the-road Hollywood screenplay with not a very interesting story, and you have professional actors who are used to behaving, acting, if you will, Mm -hmm. the high frame rate is only going to highlight how inappropriate those things are. Yeah. How unreal those people are, are behaving and how contrived the situation is. Interesting. The technology being used to shoot this story is ruining the story. So I'm watching Gemini Man, which is a story about uh, the world's best assassin played by Will Smith. He can shoot a guy on a moving train from miles away. And he wants to get out because that's what these stories always require. But uh, no one's ever contend as yeah. a hitman. I'm going. I'm going full career. However, Clive Owen playing the Clive Owen role uh, <laughs> says, "No, no, we, we he can't just step away. We need to take him out. And I'm going to take him out using my guy from the Gemini program. Turns out his guy from the Gemini program is Will Smith's clone." who was cloned at some point in the mid-90s, so he's much younger than Will Smith. Will Smith plays them both, but thanks to cutting-edge special effects technology, he's playing his 50-year-old self and his, like, 21-year-old self. How convincing is it? With the high frame rate, 85%. (laughs) That's pretty good. It's pretty good. There are actually actually some shots that are really, really convincing. There's some where the the facial, like, tracking doesn't work so well. I I don't think they've been able to do, like, open mouths very well. I'm I'm forgiving with visual effects, because I understand it's a visual effect. I know there aren't two Will Smiths, so (laughs) I'm willing to cut you a little slack, whatever, as long as I'm mostly convinced I'm fine. Yeah, I'm mostly... And they also... uh, Ang Lee is really good about fudging it in a few scenes. There's a scene where the two Will Smiths are fist fighting, Mm 
and another character has a rifle with a light on it, and they stand behind the two fighting figures with the light pointing toward the camera, so they're sort of in silhouette throughout uh, that okay. whole fight. Gets a, it's a good way to fudge it. Yeah, it works. Um, works fine. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not faulting him for not having, you know, super avatar level of special effects here. Um, I'm going to criticize him, though, for not knowing what the hell he's doing with this technology. Uh, I think it looks like dirt that barfed. It's, <laughs> it's terrible. It's a terrible look. To it's, uh, Unless you're going to make some sort of story about how the world is just sort of hyper real, a film like about, you know, I've I've heard it said that you know after you've experienced an accident or some kind of like really horrendous uh, like traumatic event the world everything seems really hyper real for you in that moment and if you were to tell a much more natural story where you're actually trying to make the world seem more real then that sort of technology would be fine when you're shooting a really bad script and just sort of doing your usual thriller shtick and even not very well at that yeah you're just using this ugly technology to highlight how bad your movie is so it's kind of an unpleasant experience right? watching Gemini Man. There's always this thing. We ran into this with The Lion King a little bit mm. uh, earlier this year where we're trying to take big leaps in visual effects technology. Yeah. And I, th- and I think high frame rate is functionally a visual effect. It's trying to we're trying to wow you with a, how... A, as of now, yes. This okay. might become a, just a standard layer. It might. Yeah. But, like, I feel like we want to do it, and we want to do it in a big blockbuster movie to sort of make the most of it. But mm. it's not necessarily ready yet. Yeah. We haven't, well, it's we haven't not that, it's what not to that do the technology it. isn't necessarily ready. It's that the audience isn't, and, yeah, and the filmmakers Well, that's my point. Are. We don't know what to do with it mm. yet. Like, we've, it's like, um, uh, there's, uh, what's, there's some movie or something where someone invented something and they didn't know what it's used. It's uh, uh, The Hudsucker Proxy? No, I was <laughs> thinking of, uh, I was actually thinking of Van Helsing. Hmm. where uh, the monk had invented, like, a flash grenade, uh. and he didn't know what it would be used for yet. I just know it creates a really bright light really fast, but <laughs> so it's not going to, like, light the way down a hallway. Mm. No, it lasts, like, a second. Well, Why, well, what, what would we use that yeah, for? A bright, a really bright light for a second that has no use for us. Yeah, so. well, it turns out it's really useful against vampires. It's a vampire grenade. <laughs> so, like, I didn't know what it would be used for. I knew it would come in handy eventually. Uh-huh. I said it wouldn't be used for yet. So it's like we've got this high frame rate thing. We've got mm. the – now that we're not like locked into like actual projectors with celluloid film, we have the option to expand to higher frame rates with more more ease. Yeah. So we can play with it. But to do what? And well, I don't think we figured yeah. out what yet. I, I, I think we're what, – what is it good for yet? Like what does mm. it make better? I would think Ang Lee, who's – he he sort of drank the Peter Jackson Kool-Aid where yeah. he he used to make kind of nuanced character driven pieces or like tone driven pieces and kind of went off the tech uh, well, board I mean, at some point. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, Life of Pi was really good. Yeah, I mean, like, and, and I think, but you, you can see a, a definite arc in Ang Lee's career yeah. where he started with character dramas and now he's doing very tech heavy dramas mm-hmm. or tech heavy like cinema experiments. Yeah. Again, there's a place for that. And. I understand a big part of this is modern audience just needs to have an evolved eye to accept something that looks this way. We're used to film looking a certain way. But I think what I said earlier about film requiring a certain level of artificiality holds true. I think you're right. And I think that because we – not just because we were trained on a lower frame rate, but because – 
that lower frame rate is only a pro- has has dictated the kind of stories that we can tell. Yeah. That when we're sort of jumping into this new higher frame rate, it's it's not just that our eyes aren't trained; it's that our our minds aren't ready to accept it. Well, like it, it's showing us everything. We're yeah. not used to seeing everything. Mm-hmm. In reality, we're not used to seeing everything. Our eyes aren't that clear, so you're actually like pushing it too far, arguably. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I think right. I think we might just want to reject it a little bit, and maybe we will. Maybe we're not ready for it. Maybe we never will be. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Uh, we're we're definitely ready for, and I want more people to go to see. Hmm. High strung free dance. <laughs> I, I regret not seeing this. I regret I, you not seeing this as well. I, I haven't seen either of the high strung films. Okay, so, so Whitney and I, mm. just as a baseline, uh, Whitney and <laughs> just I, just as are, a primer for for newer listeners, uh, Whitney and I are two of the biggest fans you will ever meet of the Step Up franchise. Oh, absolutely. More more than the actors who are in them, in fact. Actually, yeah, I've interviewed some of them, and they were like kind of off-put by how excited I was yeah. about them. Um, okay. Adam G. Savani, who plays Moose in most of those movies, uh, evidently he's a little bit embarrassed. Uh, is he? I didn't... I, well, like, I, he, like, he's proud of his work, but I think he... He doesn't he want to be see, known for it. Yeah, like, he sees those as, like, something he's going to do on his way to something bigger, and, yeah. and to be celebrated for that is a little embarrassing. Well, in any case, I think they're great. Uh, the Step Up movies... Uh, the you don't first, just think they're great. They are. The first Step Up movie is stars Channing Tatum and Jenna Dewan, and it was a big deal. Uh, but it's basically a Dirty Dancing knockoff. It's a good one, mm. but it's not really unique or, or interesting. Mm. From two through five, on the other hand, are <laughs> fucking phenomenal. And, Three especially, but yes. But they start taking place in these really broad realities where everything is caused by or solved by dancing, <laughs> and in which people get sort of weird dancing powers after a while, and you start meeting people who may or may not actually be robots when they do the robot, and... Yeah, just reality just starts to bleed away, and all you're left with is this kind of perfect fantasy realm where <laughs> everything is awesome forever, mm-hmm. and everything bad in the universe can be solved with a dance battle. Yeah. And the dancing is phenomenal, because mm-hmm. 99 times out of 100, they cast good dancers, and then if they act, great. <laughs> and if not, it's charming. Um I love them all. The second one is... uh, The second and fourth ones are kind of like heist movies, Mm. but with dancing. Uh, The third (laughs) one is uh, kind of like the X-Men, but with dancing, but not really. And then the fifth one is a Vegas show thing, Mm. and it's nutty and not as good as the other ones, but still really, really fun. And it has been a while since we had a new Step Up movie. They had a TV series on YouTube, which... I haven't seen yet because it was on YouTube Red and I couldn't afford no, it. Nobody wanted to subscribe to YouTube Red. I, I'll get to it eventually because mm. I'm a fan. And there's also a there's uh, a Step Up Six. Yeah, in that was only wasn't released in America. I think I think we'll get. To, I think we had it eventually. I'm sure it'll yeah. get to Netflix or something. But yeah, it's like Step Up to China or something like it, that. It takes place in China. Um, yeah. I think it's just called Step Up International or something. It's had a couple international names. Well, there's mm. one that came out earlier this year that just has not made it over here yet. Mm. I don't know why. Uh, I'm sure we'll get it someday. But for now, what we do have Mm. in its place, because it's been a while since we had a Step Up movie, are the High Strung films. The original High Strung came out in 2016, I want to say. It's it's called Step Up Year of the Dance. There you go. A.K.A. Step Up China. Okay, I'm not crazy. All right. Uh, High Strung Mm. is 
a dance movie made by people who make Hallmark movies about American women who end up accidentally marrying princes from fictional European countries. Mm. Seriously, the director and cinematographer have worked on multiple versions <laughs> of that story. They've done it with Lacey Chabert. They've done it with Winnie from Wonder Years. Mm. They've done it several times. And it's always great. So they understand slick and artificial. They are overqualified to make these dance movies. We're off to a good start. The original High Strung... My name is, is Danica McKellar, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. The original High Strung is one of those concepts where you hear it and you're like, is that a movie? How do we get a movie out of that? <laughs> and it's about a, an aspiring young dancer who teams up with a violinist mm. to put on a violinist dance show. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> I'm not convinced it is a thing. It's not a thing. I don't think it is. It takes place in a universe where this is a thing. So he's, he's a street violinist who's like all oh, super awesome and shit. And uh, she's, a, she's, a, she's going to a dance academy where Jane Seymour runs things with an iron fist. And um, uh, they, they run into each other a couple of times and then she... Uh, there, there's an altercation, he loses his prize violin, and it turns out he can't afford mm. to pay for it or even pay for his housing because he's in the country illegally. Uh, he's, like, from Britain or something, and he's overstayed his visa. And mm. uh, The only way he can make enough money to, like, stay for, you know, apply for visa, stay in the country, mm. uh, is if they win this competition where uh, you get a violinist and a dance crew to, to work together and make a thing. I didn't know that was a thing. Again, it's not a thing. But somehow they managed to combine the dance battle genre with the violinist genre, which again, I remind you, is not a thing. <laughs> the violinist, violinist genre. There, there are plenty of films about hardworking musicians. Sure, and there are movies about violins. Red yeah. Violin is a brilliant motion picture about this one violin, this masterfully crafted mm. violin that passes through different people's hands throughout uh, history. A brilliant movie. You should see it. It's really great. Um, and I've seen movies about other like singing competition. Like I've seen one about a singing competition where at the end there's like an evil singer and a good singer. It's like a French movie, mm -hmm. and in the end they have to have like a singing battle until one of them destroys their voice permanently, <laughs> and that's how you win. And I'm like, that's incredible. <laughs> and it's a period piece too. It's fucking awesome. I wish I could remember what that one was called. Someone, if you know that what I'm talking about, please tweet me. French singing competition. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna look that up. I'm gonna look that one up. Hang yeah. on a second. Here. Um, it's like it's like the singing professor or something like that. Something really generic. Was it like Le, Le Choriste, Was it? I don't think so. Mm. Um, and uh, it ends in a big flashy performance, and everyone's in love, and it's great. The dancing mm. is really really fun. Sometimes really really silly. I showed Whitney a clip of an impromptu violin duel in which uh, everyone who's working on the waitstaff at this fancy party starts like chiming in dance wise like a Greek chorus, mm. and it's fucking great. So I missed that when it first came out in theaters because no one talked about it. And then I was given High Strung Free Dance an assignment. Just mm. please review this movie for us. I'm like, okay, I guess I need to see High Strung. I'm so glad I saw High Strung. Hmm. And I'm so glad I saw High Strung Free Dance. Because High Strung Free Dance is also fucking great. <laughs> it's High Strung Free Dance because there's no colon. Yeah. It's just weird. It's like a new step up to the streets. How are we supposed I, to say that? I don't know what strung free means, but uh, <laughs> it, this is high strung free. Uh, high strung free dance mm. only has one character uh, from the original film, and it's Jane Seymour. And the protagonist <laughs> is Jane Seymour's daughter. Okay. 
Jane Seymour's daughter is also an aspiring dancer, going you know following in her mother's footsteps, literally. Um, and uh, she is uh, auditioning for dance shows mm. all around town. And you, she's you didn't have the feet. I don't have the heart. Shut up. It's from uh, se- that's from Center Stage. <laughs> I, I saw Center Stage like once when it came out. I actually barely remember it. Uh, uh, we need to do that. There's like a whole franchise of that. We need to do that one day. The th- there's at least like, three. There's at least three. Ones, it might be yeah. four, but there's at least three. Uh, she wants to be. She wants to be an actress, and she's, she wants to be a dancer. And she has just auditioned to be in a new Broadway show mm. that's mostly just dancing uh, called Free Dance. Hence the title. Mm. Uh, and it is being choreographed by a wunderkind named Xander Reigns, who, of course, oh, you know, like, choreographs a lot of it shirtless like the young hunk he is. Mm-hmm. And she wows him by, like, totally breaking the rules of the audition. So he hires her. And then they get, and he's like, and he's going to take her, like, oh, let's go get drinks afterwards. Well, we have a, a whirlwind of Star Wars born romance, even though I'm only, like, two years older than you. <laughs> and uh, they get in their car. Meanwhile... We're also introduced to a pianist named Charlie. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the movie takes the tack that the piano is a string instrument. There's always been some discussion uh, of whether it's, it's is percussion it string or, or string. percussion. It's percussion. Right? Yeah, there, it's, I, there's, yeah. there's an ongoing debate about it. Clearly, High Strong thinks it's a string instrument, so we're just going to let right. it go. Um, he is, he's an aspiring pianist. He's very talented. Um, he's also a delivery boy, and in one of the film's earliest scenes, uh, he delivers a bunch of like bagels or something to a really ritzy house, mm. and he sees they have a really fancy piano, and he plays something really cool on it, and it turns out the house belongs to a reclusive former pianist who's totally into him. Oh my god! And, but she's she's got arthritis, and she's afraid to be seen in public, so she starts <laughs> training him in secret from another room. And I'm like, yes, all of this, yes, this is great. You're describing my favorite movie. It's great. So uh, they. Uh, our heroine mm-hmm. and the choreographer Xander Reigns run into Charlie, uh, literally with their car, <laughs> as he's oh, bicycling right. to, a, to a, b- a piano gig. <laughs> and so they tr- they take him to the piano gig, and the piano gig uh, is in another reality. <laughs> they like go into a, a, a room, and all of a sudden it's the 1920s, and everyone's dressed that way, and it looks really crazy. <laughs> and there's this great, awesome oh Bruno Mars dance routine. Oh my God. But he loses his sheet music. He was just, he was just, he was just like he's mm-hmm. a sudden backup. He was supposed to pull the sheet music, uh-huh. so he has to make it all up, and he impresses the shit out of everybody. Mm-hmm. And so everyone's like, oh my god, he's the best pianist we've ever seen. This sounds like a, a movie about pianos written by somebody who has nothing about p- pianos I, music. Mostly, yes. Right. Uh, he ends up delivering more bagels to Xander Reigns in the middle of his audition. Mm. And Xander Reigns is just like, did I not give you enough money for the bicycle? Like, what did I, what did I do? It's like, no, 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 I, I want to audition for your show. And he's just like, no. And I'm like, come on, let me, give me 16 bars. 16 bars to wow you. Uh, That's what it should have been called. 16, 16 bars bar- to wow you. <laughs> All right. And he plays 16 bars. And not only has he been hired as the pianist for rehearsals, he's now also the star of the show. Because the show is about a pianist and what's going on inside his brain as oh, he's composing no! as represented by Jane Seymour's daughter. Oh, no. This sounds amazing. But turns out just then, the girl who's like been hired to like be in the background mm. the like major superstar like lady gaga or madonna or whatever that they'd gotten to star in it mm. backed out and now she's the lead of course she is awesome all of this is awesome <laughs> all of this is melodramatic I, and superficial I, and wonderful I, i'm i'm not being turned off by any of what you're no, saying no, no. like i i know it's fake the mm. movie knows it's fake it's fleshy and chintzy mm. and melodramatic mm. 
it's telling you what it is, like right off the bat. It is achieving every single one of its goals. Mm. This is the kind of movie that some people would call so bad it's good. I think it's just flat out good. Mm. Is it deep? Fuck no. There's nothing to it, really. Mm. It's just this lovely thing about people with great teeth who are awesome <laughs> at things. And like that's that. It's very straightforward. Mm. What I will say is this. It culminates in a gr- in a bravura performance. It's like, did you ever see Staying Alive? I, I've No, I've only seen Saturday Night Fever. Okay, there's a sequel to Saturday Night Fever not everyone knows about called Staying Alive. It's weird because it was actually a hit movie when it came out, but it didn't get good reviews and it's not very well remembered today. And it's all about John Travolta's character from Staying Alive pursuing a career in dancing on Broadway. It's not the kind of dance he was interested in, but whatever. It culminates with the performance of this crazy, campy, weird, satanic musical he's in called Satan's Alley. <laughs> and he has wormed which, his way... It sounds vaguely pornographic it to is. me, but yeah. And like, and it, he weren't, he's like, he has this like love-hate affair with the lead and uh, it's just all them running around in chains and torn shirts, Jeez. jumping on things, holding out their arms saying, Come on! Will she grab his hand? Well, yeah, it's the choreography. She's got mm. to, but apparently we're supposed to wonder. And it's just over the top and absurd. Mm. This isn't quite as absurd as Satan's Alley, but by the end of the film, you will see Charlie mm-hmm. like in like a torn shirt billowing in high winds on stage with like a self-regenerating piano as that's been like broken down but then fixes itself like Christine <laughs> as sheet music gets shot through the air in cannons and oh like our heroine is like flying around on wires and shit mm-hmm. and I'm in love with every second of it. Again, it's silly. <laughs> it knows it. It's going for it. Hmm. I have a hard time believing that you could watch either of the high strung movies hmm. and not have a delightful time. You'd, like, you'd really have to be a Grinch, I think. At that point, you'd just be like, I don't accept fun. Like, that's the only thing I can think of. Or if you just hmm. don't like dance movies in general, which I don't get, actually. I think they're just well, the wonderful displays of physical performance and very simplified storylines that are a hoot. Dance movies are cinema are pure cinema. This is what you use high frame rate on dance movies. Yeah, um, because Actually, yeah, because dance is one of those things in movies that you can't fake, or at least can't fake convincingly. Yeah, when you, you start around it, you can tell. Yeah, yeah. Watch Chicago mm-hmm. at some sometime. You'll just see how crappy the dancing is in that movie because they edit it to crap. Yep. Um, this is why. Uh, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire movies are still popular yeah. and still fun to watch and, and have probably lost always no, will be and to lost some extent. none of their power because you can't fake a good dance. A good dance is going to be really, really impressive. Even if you don't know anything about dance, I feel the same way about like a good, uh, uh, like kung fu fight. Yeah, I don't know. Which is the same thing. It's just a dance, just sort of choreography. Restage, yeah. Complicated choreography. Like I don't know how to do it, but I know what I know. Good choreography when I see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So. Okay, the characters aren't convincing. How's the dancing? Okay, the story's not convincing. Yes, how's the dancing? They hired dancers instead of actors. Good. How's the dancing? <laughs> and if the they pe- hired actors instead of dancers, then you would have crappy dancing. And the, and the music is fun, too. It's not amazing, but like there's some good music mm. in it. And That's um, one of the reasons I like that new Suspiria movie. There's a lot of dancing. <laughs> it's a really, it's really, it takes place at a dance academy. The original, there's no dancing in it. Yeah, it's like the minute. It's like a minute of it's dancing. It's a little dancing. It's Dan- like a little Dancing's rehearsal. actually like a big part of the remake. Yeah, I'll give you that. Um, anyway, it's a hoot. If you can find it, 
track it down. High Strung, the original, is uh, available for streaming for like no additional cost on like Amazon Prime and right. I think at least one other service. And it's totally worth checking out. If you if High Strung Free Dance isn't playing near you, see High Strung. Well, it's, wait. I live in Lo- I live in Los Angeles. It's not playing near me either. It's I playing know. like in Universal City, and that's it. Ugh, it's so annoying. It deserves. At least a step up sized audience. I mean, I realize it's never going to make a billion dollars, yeah. but it deserves to like make like thirty million dollars, <laughs> and then they'll be like, "Ooh, oh, golly, let's make what? a few more of these." This only costs like a million to produce. Yeah. What was the title of that the dance film made by the same team that did Step Up, and it was essentially a Step Up movie, but it had a different name? It wasn't Take the Lead or no? It, 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 was it, like it, it the, had another imperative title though. Make the grade, something like something that. Like yeah. that. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Da- I can't think of it either. Dance your feet. Well, there are a lot of Step Up esque movies that yeah. came out in the wake of the success of particularly Step Up yeah. Two. Take um, take the lead, stomp the yard. Yeah, I mean, mm. like, and Bring It On was before that, but like, there, there's there's a tradition of dance movies mm. going back to. I mean, obviously the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers stuff, mm. but the dance genre as we know it mm. at least goes back as far as the Break In movies, where like dance yeah. solves everything, whether <laughs> or not there's actually a musical number involved. Well, the, the kind of modern. Uh, sort of fantastical application of dance. Yeah. Like everything can Start. be the cause of and solution to all life's problems is mm. dance. Yeah. yeah. I love it personally. Mm. It's one of my favorite subgenres. So um, on the critically acclaimed scale, we review films on a scale of C minus to C plus with C minus being below average. Mm. Uh, C being average. Uh-huh. It's fine. And C plus being above average. And above average could be everything from the best movie ever to just pretty darn good. Mm. And below average could be everything from the worst movie ever to just kind of bad. High Strung Free Dance gets a big old C plus. (laughs) Again, it's not profound, Uh, but it's exactly what it's trying to be. It sounds so great, and I'm sorry I missed it. You need to check it out at some point. I think you'll really be happy. It'll make you happy. It'll it'll improve your day. Okay. Um, Let's see what we got here. Uh, Gemini Man. C minus. Ah, just nothing really great is coming out of this weird failed experiment. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, Mary, uh, the new horror film with Gary Oldman and Emily Mortimer. Uh, it's a C minus. It's not a passionate C minus. It's mm. not like the worst thing ever. It just doesn't work. And it's a shame because it's a good setup and a good cast. Uh, what was next? Parasite. Uh, Parasite C plus. It is quite a good film, I think. Um, Everyone should see it. I think it's one of the best films I've mm. seen this year. Um, you're still not over yet. There's a lot of good stuff coming out, hopefully. Mm. Uh, so we'll see if it where it ends up on lists and stuff. But it's a high, high recommendation. It's a C yeah. plus all the way. Uh, and then The Addams Family. Uh, C minus. They took something interesting and subversive and turned it into the opposite of that thing. And I was <laughs> mad about it. Uh, I'm going to give it. A, I'm going to give it a middling C. All like right. it's. I think it's. I think it's mostly harmless. I think the stuff that Winnie doesn't like isn't without precedent in The Addams Family. Mm. Um, but I do think it's mostly only effective to introduce really little kids to the Addams Family and then get them interested in looking at the comic strips or the original series or the Barry Sonnenfeld films. Damn. So as a gateway, I, it's okay. I, th- I think with the strips and a sitcom already. Ready? This film does. We don't need that film to do that. We well, can just sit, kids, sit down a kid in front of a sitcom, and they'll 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 enjoy little it. Little kids talk about it. They see the kid movies at school, yeah. and so this will get them excited to do that. Mm. Whereas the, otherwise, they might only be excited if their parents shared their excitement. Yeah. So if your parents aren't the type of parents who'd be like, I can't wait to show my kids the Adams Family. Mm. Now they might be encouraged to, and I think yeah. that might be a good thing. Yeah, you do yeah. have to reintroduce things to new generations once in a while. I get yeah, that. for sure. I get that. This isn't the best version of that, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's the worst either. Yeah, um, and that's critically acclaimed. 
That's it. That's Thank our show. You. Yeah, good. That long one this week. We had a lot <laughs> to review. Uh, next week, we will be back with a ton of new movie reviews, including Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. Hooray. Zombieland 2, Double Tap. <laughs> uh, the new Nazi comedy, Jojo Rabbit. And uh, the new film from the director of The Witch, The Lighthouse. Yeah. Which I've, which I've been looking forward to all year. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, after seeing The Witch, I just want to see anything else he's got. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've got Jojo Rabbit from Taika Waititi. We got a sequel to Zombieland, a movie I like a lot. And we have a sequel to Disney's version of Ms. 45. So, <laughs> it's going to be an interesting week. Mm-hmm. So, join us in a week when we review all those things. Uh, if you want to email us about our reviews, uh, we'll read them, a lot of them anyway, on our new email podcast, We've Got Mail. Uh, right here on the Cancel Too Soon Networks. We answer your letters in, in its own separate entity now. Yeah, so. yeah. We're just all dedicated mm. to you. You decide what we talk about, and we talk about it uh, as much as we can, as much yeah. as we feel qualified yeah. to. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's this whole new thing now. So we hope you check that out. Uh, that's here at the Critically Acclaimed mm. Network. You can email us, letters at mm. criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, if you have the means and want to support the show financially, of course, we would love you for that. And we want to give a special shout out to all of our patrons. But uh, you can go to patreon.com slash critic acclaim. Mm-hmm. Critically acclaimed was taken, so we do critic acclaim. Uh-huh. Uh, and you have a whole bunch of stuff. You have uh, exclusive podcasts uh, about TV movies, about reviewing every Star Trek episode ever made, about uh, uh, reviewing every Best Picture nominee in Academy Awards history. We've got commentary tracks. We've got Google Hangouts. A lot of cool stuff over there, exclusive for our patrons. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I, myself, am at uh, William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And um, never forget, everyone's a critic. I'm sorry, what?